I'm Joy Howard, editor of Brigham Health Magazine. Thank you for listening to the quest to end Alzheimer's disease, brought to you by Brigham Health. We provide the latest information on today's health topics directly from our experts. In this live recording from Access Brigham Health, our panel discusses their work to prevent, diagnose, and treat people who are living with or are at risk of Alzheimer's disease. Please remember, this information should not take the place of recommendations from your healthcare providers. So I'd like to welcome you all again to the Access Brigham Health evening program around finding a cure for Alzheimer's disease, and I want to welcome our panel right now. So the first is Dr. Rebecca Amarillo, who is a clinical neuropsychologist joining us today. Rebecca, come on up. Dr. Kurt Daphner. Kurt, why don't you come on up? So Kurt is the chief of the Division of Cognition and Behavioral Neurology and the director for the Center of Brain Mind Medicine. And lastly, I'd like to introduce Kate Papp, Dr. Papp, who is a clinical neuropsychologist at the Brigham as well. All right, so we're going to go ahead and start. Rebecca, I'm going to start with you. Why is everybody so worried about Alzheimer's? It's often said that Alzheimer's disease is one of the most feared consequences of, of aging. And it's a devastating disease in that people are robbed very slowly and painfully of their memory and their independence. And while there are uh, medicines to treat symptoms or to address the symptoms, it doesn't treat the underlying cause of the disease. So people are often left fearful of what, what happens when they, when they have these symptoms. So currently right now in the United States, 5.8 million people have Alzheimer's disease, and that's thought to double by 2050. And about $290 billion is, is thought to be spent in 2019 on Alzheimer's disease. And finally, about 83% of the caregivers of people with Alzheimer's disease are family members and friends who are unpaid. So there's a huge emotional toll to the disease. So it really affects many people in different ways. Okay. So given that scope, Kirk, I'm going to turn to you and say, that everybody is forgetful from time to time. And so can you help us understand what's considered normal and when might be the time to pursue an evaluation? Sure. <laughs> There's Relax. some ner nervous laughter. <laughs> yes, I would say that this is something that is on all of our minds. So here are a couple of clues. It's really common as we get older to have trouble rapidly retrieving someone's name, normal. However, if a person can't remember anything about the individual whose name they don't recall, that's a problem. It may be common for us to search for words briefly while we're speaking, but it's a problem uh, that is more serious if a person can't generate coherent speech. It's probably common for us to hesitate when we're in an unfamiliar place and we're driving. Probably very normal, but it's a problem if you can't find your way home on familiar roads. It's not uncommon to struggle a bit learning new technology, but it would be concerning if you can't manage household appliances. It's not uncommon for people to feel temporarily isolated or down, but it would be concerning if someone has prolonged periods of isolation, withdrawal, depression, or apathy. The good news is that normal cognitive aging, which there's no escaping it if we get older, does not prevent us from having independent, uh, productive lives with the people we love. But I would say that if you know somebody who is concerned about their memory or their cognition, 
have them evaluated. It can be a very reassuring process. It can also lead to discoveries of processes or conditions that can be treated. So don't simply be reassured, oh, don't worry about it. Everybody has this. I mean, I'm reassuring you, so take it from an expert. But if you're not convinced, check it out. Get checked out, because it's an important thing and it can make a big difference in our lives. All right, terrific. So the next, um, I'm going to combine a couple questions together, and Kate, I'll give you the first crack at it, and then Rebecca, I'll, I'll also call on you. So can we see it? Can we stop it? And so what's going on in terms of the field of detection and prevention around Alzheimer's disease? Sure. So the short answer is yes, we can see it. Ten years ago, the only way we could see biological markers of Alzheimer's disease in the brain was looking at post-mortem tissue under a microscope. Since then, there's been a substantial amount of progress in detection of Alzheimer's disease biomarkers in living people. So now, using molecular neuroimaging techniques, we can actually see the signs of amyloid and tau using a brain scan. And this has really revolutionized the field of Alzheimer's disease because we now know more definitively that Alzheimer's disease is really a continuum. That is, there are changes in the brain that are occurring as up to 20 years prior to someone actually having significant memory symptoms. And that might seem slightly daunting, but it also provides a wonderful extended opportunity of a time period where we can potentially intervene and change the course of an individual's disease. Um, so we can detect this, and we're developing even more sensitive and better tools to detect these earliest changes that are not only linked to amyloid and tau in the brain, but that could also help us find those early changes in memory functioning that are not necessarily normal, but might be harbingers of something down the line. And so a lot of our work in our research is about developing cognitive tools, clinical tools that can detect those subtle changes that are occurring so that we can measure them and use them in clinical trials where we're actually testing treatments. I'll speak a little bit about can we stop it. So there are a number of clinical trials that are underway. Many of them are happening just down the hallway on this floor at the Brigham. And so many of the trials thus far have been amyloid focus. So Dr. Pat mentioned amyloid as being one of the target proteins in Alzheimer's disease. But there's also new trials that are up and coming that are targeting tau, and then also novel mechanisms such as um, neuroinflammation. But of course, we've all heard in the news and, and disappointing results in clinical trials that are certainly heartbreaking every time you hear them. And it really kind of raises the question, are we, are we aiming for the right target? Are we aiming for the right point in the disease? in which to intervene. And so uh, just to highlight that all the, many of these failed trials were at the stage of, of dementia where people had significant cognitive symptoms. And there's now some understanding that it may be just too late by that point to intervene. And so really now the focus is moving earlier and earlier. Again, with some of the innovations in imaging, we can identify people that are at risk who don't yet have symptoms and hope that by intervening at that stage, we have our best chances. So I think there is optimism in the air, um, despite hearing about these failed trials, because they have been conducted in people who are already have impairment. Uh, so there's uh, one study in particular that's going on right now here at the Brigham, 
the A4 study. Um, and so those are people that don't have any cognitive symptoms that are doing well normally on cognitive testing, but when given a scan, they can see that they have an elevated amount of amyloid. So these are people that are now in this study and are, are taking a drug to target the amyloid. And we'll see what happens. We're a couple years in, and so we won't have the results for a number, a few more years, but there's promise there. And then also there, we're even trying to move earlier than that, the A3 study that's getting going where it's kind of pre-preclinical. So people that have sub-threshold amyloid levels, but aren't yet what we consider positive levels, or elevated levels of amyloids. There's definitely promise with those studies and we'll, we'll see what happens. But there's, I think many would agree in the field that moving earlier is where we need to go. Got it. And so, Kirk, I'm gonna ask you to follow up, uh, to tackle a follow-up question to what Rebecca and Kate just outlined. So given where we've seen some disappointments in terms of interventions, can you just help level set, where are we right now in terms of treatments for clinically apparent Alzheimer's disease? Sure. I would say that a disease like Alzheimer's um, affects many different parts of a person's life. It can affect their cognition, their emotions, their behavior, sometimes their ability to move. And right now we have uh, strategies and ways to ameliorate a whole range of symptoms. I think the Brigham, we take really seriously that the way to, to take care of people now is through a multidisciplinary approach. Um, so we have in our group cognitive neurologists, neuropsychiatrists, neuropsychologists, and social workers, each with expertise that's slightly different, aiming to improve a person's quality of life and function. There are a range of pharmacological symptomatic treatments that aim at a person's problems with memory and cognition that can be uh, targeting people's depression, anxiety, behavioral difficulties, and sleep problems. There's a whole host of non-pharmacological interventions that can be offered. Cognitive therapy, especially for people who are in early stages so that they learn compensatory strategies and ways around using the parts of their brain that are still functioning well. Cognitive behavioral therapy, which is a non-pharmacological intervention that provides learning of skills to help people cope with whatever they face in a way that is more adaptive. We have um, supportive kinds of psychotherapy for people who are facing these very difficult transitions. And we have uh, group kinds of therapy, which for often caregivers and members who have, or people who have the disease, so that they feel less isolated and alone and they can learn from their peers. The caregiver is also a, a very important part of current day treatment. Caregivers are at tremendous risk for developing stress-related illness and depression, and that by treating the caregiver, it improves their quality of life and has a, a, a remarkably beneficial effect on uh, patients. There have been a lot of studies on this. So we have social workers who work with um, the family members and other caregivers to cope better, plan for the future, and feel less isolated because among the worst things about this disease is the experience that we're all alone and nobody cares. So I'm gonna anticipate a question that was gonna come out at the Q&A, but I know it's gonna come up and I'm so confident, I think we just sort of go there. I'll bet that there are people in the audience right now wondering what can they do to reduce the chance or prevent the possibility of that they might actually go on to develop Alzheimer's. And Kate, maybe you could tackle that one first. And Absolutely. So there's been a lot of interest in lifestyle factors, particularly because we haven't had a medication cure as of yet. 
And the number one recommendation, the number one thing that across multiple studies that has been shown to be effective in slowing cognitive decline is physical exercise. And unfortunately, that doesn't just involve stretching, but it actually involves aerobic exercise. So getting your heart rate up for 30 minutes at minimum, at least three times a week, has been shown in study after study to be protective for your cognitive health. The second thing that is important is to manage cardiovascular risk factors. So a healthy heart is a healthy brain. And managing things like high blood pressure, high cholesterol, diabetes, these are all things that can influence the amount of decline someone experiences in later life. And so managing those things can have a positive impact on cognitive functioning. And then finally, what has been shown across multiple research studies is a Mediterranean-style diet. So that involves lean meats, fish, vegetables, olive oil, complex grains, healthy type foods, and that's been shown to also be protective. There also have been a number of studies that have shown that people who have higher education levels, also people who are more socially and cognitively engaged in everyday life, that those individuals are in some way protected from decline. And so that's something to consider in learning new skills as you get older and making new social connections and, and remaining active and engaged in the community. Great. Kirk, anything you want to add in terms of that prevention angle? Well, a couple things. The Mediterranean diet, by the way, is basically an un-American diet. <laughs> so, that, and a, a diet well represented by our offerings tonight. Just uh, have to put in that plug. So. <laughs> we, have, we have nothing to do with that. Well, a few things. Sleep. Sleep is a time where the brain appears to clear out toxic waste and bad proteins. It's a time where stress hormone levels go down and stress hormone levels hurt the brain. It's a time where we consolidate memory. So the recommendation for people 65 and over is seven to eight hours a night. For those in the audience who are a little younger, it's seven to nine hours. Younger people, for whatever reason, need a little bit more sleep. Also, treatment of sleep-related disorders like obstructive sleep apnea, which can be very detrimental and which is very common, um, is important. And there's evidence, growing evidence, that treating that improves cognition. Substances. Smoking is bad for the brain and the heart and increases your risk of uh, dementia. Doing what is possible to reduce or quit smoking is important. For those of us who drink, drinking moderately is a good idea. Too much is not a good idea. Safety. Protect our brains. They're our most precious asset. Wear seatbelts, if you ride bicycles, wear a helmet, be mindful of toxins that are around us. And stress. Stress undermines our well-being, it causes us to release hormones that injure the parts of the brain, really important for memory, and it takes up a lot of our resources. So getting treatment for stress, depression, anxiety uh, is important. Let's see, what else? Oh, sensory. People who have hearing problems and vision problems are at higher risk for cognitive decline and dementia. It is my opinion, it is not worth spending any extra mental activity just trying to decipher sounds or um, words on a page. There's evidence recently that trajectory of decline can be leveled off people who get hearing aids or who have cataract surgery. So there are definitely things that we can do to reduce the risk and we should be doing those things. So I feel like you're channeling my, my inner primary care doctor when I hear about all these behavioral changes, but the challenge is always, how do we move people to actually execute on those behavioral changes? So I just heard you, you and Kate both sort of laid out some terrific advice, but any thoughts on how do we 
encourage and support our patients to really adopt those and take that next step. Is that to me? Sure. Okay, uh, there are things that we can do. We can adopt concrete, specific, actionable, manageable kinds of goals. And the more narrow, the more concrete, the better. We can try to uh, make ourselves um, accountable to others by doing these kinds of activities. Exercise would be a good example, but other kinds of activities with friends, hiring a personal trainer, someone who is going to help us stay on track. We can be kind to ourselves, that is, be willing to, or be realizing that there are hurdles and that we need to get over them and not become profoundly discouraged and simply give up. We can help. Leave your sneakers at the door. Ah, yes. Cues and, <laughs> yes. So cues um, and rewards. Or leave your sneakers at the door. Put your sneakers on. You can say, well, I'm, I'm just not going to do anything. Well, you put your sneakers on and then you're wearing, walking around. You say, I got my sneakers on. I may as well take a walk. Slowly build things up. Reward yourself. So if you go and take a, block, a walk around the block for 10 minutes, you get to read People magazine or watch The Bachelor, something that you deserve. <laughs> so I think that uh, this is hard, but there are behavioral techniques that have uh, been vetted and that are helping people get from here to there. That's terrific. Thank you. Rebecca, I want to come back to a research-related question. So you spoke uh, quite a bit about some of the trials that are going on. If people in the room were interested in getting involved in some of that research, what would be your advice? So certainly any of us that afterward you could come to and talk, we actually have information, I think, at the front desk for anyone interested in learning more about the research that's going on. I mentioned about clinical trials where there's medication involved, but there's actually many observational studies which means that you're not necessarily taking a medication followed over time, and that's very valuable as well. So there, we always say there's always a study for everyone. So there's certainly opportunity to share that information over at the front desk. Okay, and then I guess a companion question to that, maybe Kirk, I'll come back to you, is if somebody in the audience for themselves or for a loved one or family member wanted to get a clinical evaluation, what's the best way to have that happen within sure. the Brigham system? I'm pretty sure that in the same handout is a number that people can call, 617-732-8060. I'm going to test you on that, so I hope you heard it. So that's in there, and we welcome people's calling, and we will take good care of you. Terrific. All right. One other question that has come up patients in my own office is around genetic testing. And what's out there for genetic testing? Should I get tested? If I get tested, where should I get tested? And I was wondering if I could put that to the panel and if one of you want to tackle that. Kate, you want to? Sure. I think it's a very personal question about whether you want to get genetic testing. Less than 1% of Alzheimer's cases are from a pure genetic mutation. There are certainly some risk factor genes that can increase your likelihood of getting Alzheimer's disease. It's equivalent in t some ways to knowing that you've had a parent or a sibling who has the disease. Mm -hmm. People who get that information or seek out that information usually do well with knowing that information, but it's perfectly reasonable to not. It may be that getting that information that you're at an increased risk might encourage you to engage in some of these lifestyle factors, so that, mm -hmm. that would be a positive. There are also some prevention trials and primary prevention trials that are coming down the pike that are actually recruiting people on the basis of having some of these genetic risks. That said, these genes that increase your risk are not guarantees. So there's plenty of individuals, so 40 to 65% of people who have Alzheimer's disease don't actually have this main risk factor gene, APOE. 
There's people who have Alzheimer's disease who don't have the gene, and then people who have the gene who don't get Alzheimer's disease. So being able to be okay with uncertainty and the potential to make lifestyle changes or to even participate in, in clinical research seem like good ways about getting this, or good reasons to get this genetic testing. But the other thing is it might also have implications for other family members, and that might be information that they may or may not want to get. Great. Thank you. And then maybe a final question before we get open it up to uh, question and answers. And Kurt, maybe again, I'll start with you, but happy to have Kate and Rebecca opine. We heard about that relationship with cardiovascular disease and dementia. And certainly the Brigham for a long time has been on the forefront of cardiovascular health. We are but a bridge away from the Center for Cardiovascular Medicine. I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit more about what is known about that link between cardiovascular health and dementia. Well, all the major cardiovascular risk factors, diabetes, high cholesterol, and hypertension being way up there, are also associated with an increased risk of brain problems and cognitive deterioration. In fact, it's often a combination of cerebral vascular disease, which is just vascular disease involving your brain instead of your heart, a combination of that along with something like Alzheimer's disease, and it's a potent synergistic process. We know that efforts to reduce or have better control of diabetes and cholesterol have uh, good outcomes or better outcomes in terms of cognition with epidemiological studies. There was a, a study published earlier this year uh, called the MIND study, Mind, Sprint MIND study, where they looked at aggressively treating high blood pressure to uh, systolic blood pressure of 120 instead of what was the standard of care, which is 140. And uh, they demonstrated that there was reduction in the risk of cognitive, mild cognitive impairment at the 15 to 19% level. So this, I think, gives us a very strong reason to do everything in our power to work on these cardiovascular risk factors. This is something that we can do today. Things that Kate and Rebecca have been talking about are await us in the future. But there's no reason not to start right now. Terrific. And I think, actually, when you do this as a primary care doctor, you're channeling the behavioral neurologist in you. I love it. I love it. I feel even more empowered then to get back to my day job. Great. I want to thank all three of you for helping to share your expertise and your wisdom tonight for this Access Brigham Health event on the quest to end Alzheimer's disease. So thank you so much. Thank you for listening. To hear more from experts at Brigham and Women's Hospital, please subscribe or visit bwhevents.org slash ABH.